Hi BTEC students, so in this podcast I'm going to cover the first outline in relation to writing your methodology. So the project is a combination of different elements. So you're working on at the moment your literature reviews and the next submission after that is your proposal. And the proposal is made up of your title, your introduction, and I'll, I'll talk to you um, about the introduction soon, uh, as well as your literature review, your updated literature review. So between when you submit your literature review to me on the uh, 21st of August, and when you submit the proposal, you will have had some feedback and you will be able to, to make some corrections on your literature review. So that's why I say it's the updated literature review. It's, it's not the version that you hand in now, but it's also not brand new. It's not a new thing completely. It's, it's just updated from your previous submission. And most importantly, the, the one thing that is added that is new, brand new, is your methodology section. And the methodology section is your plan for what you're going to do in order to find out about the topic that you're looking at. So are you doing interviews? Are you doing focus groups? How are you doing them? How are you going to make sense of the information once uh, you've got it from your participants? All of that kind of detail goes into your methodology. So I'm going to just skip through um, to talk specifically about the methodology. Um, obviously, uh, as I said, it's this, the proposal is, is a composite of the previous elements of the project. So you, you will need to know that you're not just submitting your methodology, that in fact it, it also is a submission of the, pro the full proposal. So the methodology is made up of a couple of different things that you need to include. And what is nice about the methodology is that unlike in the literature review where the structure is more loose and you have to fill it in with the information that you've got, the structure of a methodology can be quite uh, straightforward. And that is that there are different sections within the methodology and you can number those sections and just cover what you need to for those sections and then move on to the next section. So it, it, it's already got some structure in place already. And the, the loose sort of um, organization of that is that you talk about your plan, you talk about who you're going to work with, you talk about what you're going to do and what then how you're going to analyze it and make sense of it. So it kind of flows in terms of how you would actually do things. So what you would do first comes first in the organization of how these ideas flow. So I've got that there are nine things that you need to include in the methodology section. That is the design is first. So if you think of the methodology as the fifth section of your project, Number one being your title, number two being your abstract, number three being your introduction, number four being your literature review. That makes methodology number five. And uh, the first subsection under that 5.1 is design. So design is 
what approach are you taking to understanding the the project and I'll get to talking um, about that in a second the second one 5.2 is participants who are you going to be working with how are you going to find them 5.3 is the data collection what kind of data collection are you using 5.4 is instruments 5.5 is data analysis 5.6 is rigor 5.7 is reflexivity 5.8 is ethics and 5.9 is the timeline and budget the timeline and budget is for the proposal only which means that when you hand in your final project at the end of the year you don't need a timeline and budget anymore those will be deleted um, but they are important at a proposal level and again I'll talk to those uh, in a second so let's go back to 5.1 which is design you want to in the methodology be very clear about the design so we've spoken about paradigms before we've spoken about quantitative versus qualitative and those things are important to know from the beginning of your project because they shape your literature review as well but there's no place in the literature review where you say I'm doing a qualitative project or I'm doing a critical project so this is the place where you say that you first say what is your approach your approach is quantitative or qualitative and then you state your paradigm which is positivist interpretivist critical whichever your paradigm may be and you explain that choice so you don't just say what you're doing but you justify it why does that make sense for this project now remember you've just ended your literature review where you've ended it with the, your gap so you've ended with saying I need to understand this topic using this theory because um, there's a lot of support for this theory or it's the most re re recent or relevant or um, it helps to answer the questions that I'm seeing within the context etc Right? So you've just ended with your gap. And now you're starting your method by saying, I'm using this approach and this paradigm. So there's a natural link that needs to be made between those two things. That your approach and paradigm must be able to address the issues that you're seeing in your topic and with your theory. Okay, so you want to, to explain your approach and, and paradigm a little bit under 5.1. You also want to talk about your aims and rationale. So what do you aim to do with this research? What kinds of questions are you um, hoping to answer? Why is this research necessary? That speaks a little bit to the justification for your approach and paradigm as well. So these things connect together. They, they make sense in the same section. And then you are also going to include your research questions. Now it's very important that you understand research questions. The research questions are the questions that you as the researcher are asking about the, the problem that you're looking at. So uh, as a researcher, you're wanting to find out about something. 
These are not the questions that you are going to ask your participants. Those will come later and I will explain. They come under data collection. But for now, we're talking about the research questions, which are the questions that you are going to ask and answer in this research. That your project is going to make sense of. Now, your research questions and your interview or focus group questions, or even if you're doing surveys, they will be linked. So you're not going to ask your participants something that's wildly different to what you're going to ask of the project as a whole. But they are not the same and they're not the same for important reasons. Because you are working with theory, it is hard to ask participants theory questions because they are, for the most part, just members of the community, members of different organizations, and they are not, they haven't read on or thought about this topic from a theoretical perspective. So the theory is what makes your questions different from the interview questions is that you are asking how you see your theory in the world. So let's say you're looking at a, a feminist study on uh, bullying in schools, right? You want to see the gendered nature of bullying in schools. You, you won't be able to ask teachers or students or parents or anybody, whoever you're working with, about Feminism, because it's a very loaded term that people understand differently, that has different definitions, and um, and students especially might not um, have come across it before. Um, so there's that is an unhelpful way to ask interview questions, but in terms of the the things that you're trying to find, feminism is still your theoretical framework. So your research questions would still be, you want to find out about um, feminist experiences of bullying. But your interview questions may be much more subtle. They may be, talk to me about uh, moments of bullying in the classroom. And then you pull out the gendered experience. Do you think that it's different being a girl or a boy? Those would be the kinds of questions that would come into the interview. But they would not be good uh, research questions and your research questions would not be good interview questions but they obviously are linked i want to spend some some time talking about that because it's important now in terms of your research questions you can have up to three main questions or as i recommend you can have one main question and three sub questions i Encourage one main question and three sub-questions because I think that it's one project. So having one central question makes sense. And then uh, up to three sub-questions because if you have too many sub-questions, your project is too big. So three is a, a, a good maximum number for research questions. I've never really actually ever seen anybody who's gone over three because it just becomes very difficult to analyze and, and answer more than three uh, questions within the research. 
So if you're following the what I recommend, which is one main question and three sub-questions, how you go about writing your search questions is that you use your title to decide on your main question. So if your title is experiences, uh, feminist experiences of bullying in the classroom at a school in Durban, then your main question would be what are the experiences of bullying in the classroom at a school in Durban? So you simply convert your title into a question and that becomes your main question, right? So it will have all of your keywords in it and that keeps the, the, it consistent throughout the project that those keywords keep coming up um, it keeps that focus on those issues. And it, your title best encapsulates the project anyway because it includes your participants, it includes your site, it includes your theory. So all those important things are then in your main question. Your sub-questions then will be sub-parts of your theory. So you would need to look at your theory and say, what are the critical issues that this theory talks about that I then need to ask about? So if, for example, within feminism, I was looking at uh, power and patriarchy as the two big things, then depending, and that would come out of my reading and that would be in my literature review as part of my argument, that power and patriarchy are the critical issues that I want to look at then it makes sense that my two sub-questions are about, one would be about power and one would be about patriarchy. And I would only have two because those are, there was only two issues to look at. If I was using a different theory, let's say I was using a um, biopsychosocial model, I like to use this example because it's right in the name, um, but a biopsychosocial model has three components. It's biology, psychology, society. So I would have one sub-question on biology, one on um, psychology, one on society. So look at your theory and decide what is, what is the theory offering to me that I could look at. Um, it could be different levels that it's looking at, different sub-parts that it's looking at, different um, parts of the theory that, that you've uh, highlighted in your literature review as part of your argument. Those are the things that you're going to bring forward as your sub-questions. Okay. The next section is 5.2. It's your participants. So this is who you are uh, working with. So you want to say, first of all, what kind of people you're working with. Are you going to be talking to teachers or journalists or students or... Um, engineers right it doesn't matter this is obviously going to be dependent on your particular project and it can only be one kind of person so you can't say I'm going to talk to journalists and editors and managers and readers because that's going to split your data we've spoken about splitting the data before and and splitting the data means that you create ever smaller and smaller groups of people that you can no longer make any claims from the data. So if I've only got one editor in my group, then I'm only saying that that one person thinks like this. And that, that's unhelpful to the 
the process of trying to make knowledge because you want to be able to say, actually, there's enough people who think like this to think that there's something real about that, that um, that this is this is possibly an undercurrent that is that is true for many people in dealing with this problem. So you want to have one kind of person. If you're doing interviews, it would be six interviews with one kind of person. And if you were doing focus groups, it is two focus groups with between eight and 12 people in each focus group. The reason that we have two focus groups is because each group is experienced very uniquely. So the composition of who's there, the dynamics of what happens on the day, the conversation that develops, all of that is unique to those people. So if you only have one focus group, you can only say that this one group at this one time thought this thing about my problem. But if you have two and you start to see similarities between the two groups, then what you are seeing is true for the problem and not only true for the group. Okay, so in terms of your sample, you're going to tell me who you're going to interview, what is the number, um, that's important, and why you've chosen uh, those people to best represent your topic. Then you're also going to talk to me about selection. How are you going to come up with picking this um, population or this group of people? And selection is, could also be called sampling, um, and there's various sampling strategies that, that you can use in research. The first sampling strategy that you could use, um, for those doing interpretive or critical projects, I don't imagine anybody's doing positivism. In fact, let me talk about posit the positivist strategy, because positivism is a counter to what the other strategies are doing. So the, the most commonly used positivist strategy is random sampling. And when they say random sampling, they do not mean random in the sense of just unorganized, by chance, somebody gets selected. What random sampling actually means is two things. It means, one, that you know every person in the group. So if you are looking at journalists at the independent newspapers, you can get a list of every journalist who is employed by the independent newspapers. You know everybody's names, everybody um, is on, who is employed as a journalist at that organization is included. Now, positivist studies, that they will pick populations where that is true. So if you go to a school or you go to a company or you go um, to, I'm trying to think, uh, a, a religious group, right? You could ideally find everybody who's ever gone to that church, right, uh, in the last year. So you could get a, a list of people um of those names and get get that information. What you can't do, however, is that there are some groups where that is just not true. So you can't, for example, find out um, 
everybody who has HIV in Durban. Firstly, that number would be quite big, but also um, we just simply don't know. Um, similarly, we wouldn't know that, that that information for groups of people who've been raped or groups of people who are sex workers. There are some groups where knowing everybody's name, knowing um, the entire group information just wouldn't be possible. So random selection only works when you know every member of that sample. And the second criteria that makes random sample, sampling work is, is that everybody has an equal chance of being selected. So once you know everybody's names from that, that group, you can put their names in a hat, you can put it into a system on, on the computer, you can you know, roll a dice, it doesn't matter um, how you do it. But so long as everybody has an equal chance of being chosen, you then select out of a hat or based on the roll of a dice or etc. Right? So you just pick randomly, not knowing... Uh, Sorry, who exactly you're going to, to pick. There's no bias at all towards any one person over another. So there may be somebody in the group who is a really good person to talk to, but they don't get chosen because they weren't pulled out of the hat. Or there could be somebody in, in the group who is really bad to talk to, and they are chosen. And you can't know that and um, and shouldn't... Use that to dis make your decisions. Your decision is made purely by um, the the process of selecting randomly, of selecting uh, equally or giving everybody an equal chance of being selected out of a hat. And that's random selection. Now that, as I've already suggested, may not work for uh, every kind of population. It doesn't. It doesn't work where. Um, you may have participants who don't want to participate or where you just don't know every person who belongs to that particular grouping. So the other kinds of uh, sampling strategies are ones that are, are ones that will work better with interpretivist and critical projects. The first is convenience sampling. And convenient sampling is that you um, have an established group or an established connection or a convenient location. So I'm already at DUT, so I'm going to study, do my study at DUT because it's convenient, not because it's the best institution to find out about this problem. But it, it has benefits in terms of its convenience. And therefore, the, the students that I, I choose are you know, ones that are accessible to me. Or, um, the other one is purpose of sampling. Purpose of sampling is where you have certain criteria that the participants need to meet. So you would decide on things like age or location or um, job title. You know, if they're journalists, they have to be journalists, right? So you have to be able to um, have certain criteria by which the participants meet in order to meet the criteria for selection into the project. And then you would talk about 
how you will go about approaching and um, engaging people to to participate in the project that is unbiased. So those are are, are two selection strategies, both con- convenience and purposive. And sometimes people do sort of a combo of both, where they give criteria and talk about an accessible, easy uh, grouping of people. And um, so those two strategies actually work very well together. The last strategy that I'm going to talk to you about is snowball sampling. Snowball sampling, like the name suggests, is a strategy that uh, works through having a connection to one person. This is particularly useful when the the group members are uh, quite inaccessible and you don't have easy connections into that community or that group. So uh, you would have one person that you know um, or that you've been linked to in some kind of way by your researcher, for example, or by uh, somebody else, an informant. And you then ask them, you ask the participant to identify other members of the community. So you, for example, sex workers. You may know one sex worker because maybe in in the business of doing your journalism, you did a report on them once and they are somebody that you are aware of. And then you interview them or or, um, talk to them and they then identify other people who are within that community who can work with you and talk to you um, about the project. So um, that's snowball sampling. It's that you the project gets bigger and bigger as you engage with each participant, that the they link you to other participants and the project grows in that way. So you need to say what kind of sampling strategy you're going to use and you need to um, say how what that actually means for what you're doing to find people and you need to justify it. You need to link it to the other parts of your project. It doesn't, for example, make sense if you're doing a critical project to be using a random sampling, which is more positivist. Um, because the aim of, of a critical project is not to be completely representative of all people who experience that problem. You're more looking for specific experiences. So you want the best cases. And random sampling doesn't always pick up the best cases. So you need to make that connection between the sampling strategy that you're using and the approach and paradigm that you're using as well. You must also then talk about in under 5.2 the access issues. So access is how are you going to access these people? Um, for many of you, you will need gatekeeper permission. So somebody who authorizes you to access that community and that's an important part of the the PG2 document in particular. Who are you going to ask for permission? So if you're working at DUT, if you're talking to DUT students, you actually have to get gatekeeper permission. There's somebody, in this case it's a, debar- a departmental permission, but at a master's level and a PhD level, you actually get the DVC for research who signs off on your gatekeeper permission to say that you can continue to do the study. Um, so 
The same is true at other organizations or other communities. If you're working in, a, in an NGO, it could be the, uh, the CEO. I, I don't know if NGOs have CEOs or who, in any case, whoever is making the, the big decisions. If it's at a newspaper, it would be the editor. If it is that you're working in a particular community, it may be the ward councillor. So you need to think about who's going to give you, give you permission. But you also need to talk about what you're actually going to do to invite participants into the study. So are you going to post something on social media? Are you going to put a poster up on, the, on a lamppost? Are you going to go into their classroom and invite them to participate? All of those are specific decisions that um, allow certain things to be conveyed or not in terms of how the research is going to happen. So think through how you're going to do that and then write about it in the methodology. Okay, so that's, that's participants. And you can tell that there's quite a lot to consider when, when we're talking about these things. The next section is 5.3, it's data collection. This is where you want to talk about whether you're doing interviews, a survey, a focus group, right? And what that means, what is an interview, what is a, you know, a research interview, what is a focus group, why are they the option that you want to choose. Now, I'm going to send you all the readings that we did in class that help to think about the difference between interviews and focus groups. And you want to really sell the approach that you're using. Why is, is it that this, this topic needs you to use interviews? Or why is this topic needing you to use a focus group? What is a focus group? How are you going to manage the focus group? And this speaks to the second part of data collection, which is the practical issues. You're going to have to talk about the fact the, um, of, of where you're going to have the interviews or focus groups. So what is your venue? Is it neutral? Is it quiet? Because it needs to be. It needs to be one where you're not going to be disturbed um, and that your audio is going to pick up. Is it going to be tape recorded? Are you going to provide snacks for the participants? Um, how are you going to make sure that the venue is available um, how are you going to deal with the COVID regulations of distance in the space? All of those kinds of things, the practical issues need to be considered as well. 5.3, the data collection, and 5.5, the data analysis, are probably the two big pillars of your methodology. So what are you going to do and how are you going to analyze it? Now we'll get to 5.5 in a second, but 5.3 will be a meaty section of the methodology. You do need to defend your choice and explain in detail what you're going to do. So it's not just a case of I'm doing interviews and that's it. Well, what what are you doing? Are they uh, semi-structured interviews? Um, how do they help to talk about your problem? Yeah, what do they offer in terms of your paradigm, your approach, your qualitative approach, how do interviews make that make sense, and um, what are the benefits of doing interviews, all of that kind of stuff is stuff that you're going to want to use to justify your approach. Then 5.4 is your instruments, it leads on 
quite neatly from the data collection because the instruments for qualitative projects, which I know that the majority of you are using, is your interview or focus uh, group schedule. So it's the questions that you're going to ask your participants. Now there's two things here that you need to be very aware of. The one is that the questions don't actually come into the methodology section. So your interview questions don't come here. They get attached to your project. They're a completely separate document. And they have to be because some people have 300 questions in a survey. And it would break up your methodology chapter completely to have 300 questions in the middle. So you don't want them to sit here. You want them to sit in, a, in an attachment. And those are the actual questions that you're going to ask your participants. So remember I spoke to you in detail about that they're not your research questions. These are your interview questions and they will be attached. The other thing is that um, what that means is that under instruments, under 5.4, you're going to talk about what, how you have decided or what questions you've decided to include in your project. And why? So you want to say I'm using open-ended questions with probing areas or I'm using closed-ended questions um, or um, I'm using very theoretically-led questions, uh, which is uh, deductive questions or I'm using more inductive approach. Um, that it's the, ex it's the explanation for the questions comes here. And very importantly, you must say why. So why am I using a semi-structured approach? Why am I using probing areas? Why am I doing what I'm doing? So under 5.4, you're writing that explanation. And then the questions get attached. So you're going to draw up a list of questions and then attach that. And then under 5.4, describe how you came up with those questions and why those questions matter. My recommendation is to have as few interview questions as possible, to have two or three questions. Sometimes you can even get away with only one, but um, obviously I know that you're all new at research and uh, you may want to um, have a little bit more guidance in terms of formal questions. And then to have probing areas that will allow you to be flexible. The ideal interview or focus group is one in which you as the researcher do very, very little talking. And the participant does a lot of talking. Because, and this is, this is something that maybe even under data collection you must write about. You must have sufficient data to actually analyze. And if you don't have sufficient data to analyze... It becomes a very thin project. There isn't anything meaty to, to think about or unpack. And there's usually also not very much new information in a project like that because you're just getting confirmation of what you already knew if the answers are too thin. So for an interview, you must have a 30-minute interview. If you're doing interviews, they must be 30 minutes long. 30 minutes is long to talk to someone about something. Um, a focus group, you will have two focus groups, remember, and those will each be an hour long. So there's a lot of, of talking that needs to happen, but it needs to be 
that the participant is talking for 30 minutes or an hour. I mean, obviously in a focus group there's multiple voices, but it's for them to do their talking and not for you as the researcher to talk. So you don't want to ask a lot of questions. You don't want to lead them. You don't want to... Um, and by leading, I mean you don't want to have questions that are obvious about what you want to find. You want the questions to be vague and open-ended so that you get a lot of uh, natural talk from the participants, that they're telling you what things mean to them, not what they think it means to you as a researcher. So if I say something like, tell me about the problem with bullying in the school. Well, they're going to give you a very particular kind of answer to that. Whereas if I say, what are the, the things that you're seeing happening at the school that worry you? Maybe bullying will come up, maybe it won't. Or even if I, if I don't want to mention bullying specifically, I would, uh, or um, I want to, no, rather, let me, let me phrase this correctly. I want to mention bullying, but I don't want to construct how the person talks about it. So I would ask something like, do you see any bullying? Right? Not, not the kind of question that um, already presumes that there is bullying or that it's a problem. So you need to, to be very careful about how you phrase your questions uh, in the research. Okay, so I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually end the, this podcast here because it's quite long and there's still a few things to cover. Um, it's important that you understand the difference between research questions and interview questions. They're not the same thing. They work together because it's a single project, but they're not the same. And it's also important that you know that every part of your method must be justified. It can't just be... I'm doing um, interviews just in Jay, just summer, just because, right? Um, it, it must be that there is motivation for the approach that you're using. So you must link it with your theory. You must link the decisions you make with your approach, your paradigm. You must link it with your problem. So all of these things must be consistent in the ways that you are thinking about what you're going to do for your methodology. Okay, I will post a part two on this, where we go, we start with data, data analysis, um, which is 5.5. So um, you will be able to follow on from this in the next podcast. Cheers. <laughs>